Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Kirk Frankham. Welcome to the podcast, Kirk. Thank you. This is this is cool. I've listened to several of your episodes, and now I'm I'm inside of my phone in, in the episode. This is that surreal. is cool. <laughs> Will you tell our listeners how to say your name? I may not have said it correctly, and how to spell it. Yeah, it's just uh, Kurt Frankum. So K U R T F R A N C O M. So where is the last name Frankum from? Oh boy, now my my dad's gonna pin me on this one. I believe it's uh, my brother tells me it's it's old French. It means free man. But uh-huh. uh, I mean, my ancestry my my ancestors actually joined the church in South Africa. Wow, um, that's but they weren't South African. They came down from England, uh, uh-huh. found the church in South Africa, and then um, a, a man I think his name's Henry Frankum. <laughs> All the Frankums are gotta check me on this, but um. Him and his 10 sons moved to uh, Utah, the uh-huh. church, uh-huh. and uh, now you have Frankums all over, especially in Payson area, which I generally don't know, and, and uh, you know, Spanish Fork and those. And so from those 10 brothers came all these Latter-day Saint Frankums. So, so they're all connected. It's a it's yeah. kind of a name that has ties to the church. Yeah. yeah. It goes, we're all connected far back, but... Uh, so. That's awesome. Yeah. I know Kirk because he... Um, put together, and we'll talk more about this organization called Leading Saints. It's a resource tool for LDS leaders. I've become familiar with it in the last couple of years, and Kurt does a number of um, podcasts and other efforts through that. So this podcast will primarily focus on Kirk efforts with Leading Saints. But before we get into that, I just wanted to, in fact, let's do get into that a little bit. Let's mm-hmm. just introduce Leading Saints to our listeners, and then so they kind of get an idea of an overview, and then I want to come back to just kind of your story, you yeah. know, your age and how many kids and church history and yeah. s- stuff no, like that. To... So Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, a 501c3, where we strive to create uh, leadership resources uh, in the context of the church. And so though, you know, bishops and Relief Society presidents may benefit from it, it's really for anybody looking to more effectively lead, even if they're not in an official calling or capacity. Um, our, our tagline is "Be a leader, not a calling." And so, I, the way I see it is that anywhere, anywhere way we go, where we go, or calling that we receive, I think we're all, you know, uh, expected to step up and lead in some capacity. And and sometimes in our culture, and in any culture, it's a human being thing that it's easy to say, you know, well, I'm not the boss, or I'm not the bishop, or I'm not the elders' corn president, so it's not my problem, or I'll help here and there. But but if we all come together, I mean, that's, I think, part of Zion is really stepping forward and leading and setting an example and, uh, you know, stepping forward when we're maybe not expected to or called to do. I like that. Tell us about where you grew up, Kurt, and if you're married, if you served a mission, mm-hmm. or if you're active in the church, just kind of some of that and what maybe you do professionally if this is something yep. you don't do full time. So I grew up in West Valley City, Utah and went to Granger High, graduated in It's 2000. been rebuilt. I don't know yes. if that's before or after your It day. was after my time, but okay. I've been to the new building and they're incredibly spoiled to compare to what I had <laughs> there, you know, the old red brick building, but yeah, I was a part of the class of 2000 there and uh, You're a young guy. Well, hey, that was 19 years ago. I used well. to do the math. But, uh, <laughs> so I'm feeling older, but um, and so graduate, I was, came from a very traditional family. I mean, I'm the youngest of four, um, you know, jumped through all the, the hoops as a youth, uh, you know, priesthood advancements or whatever they call it now. And, uh, and, you know, Eagle Scout, uh, went on a mission after, uh, I, after I 
I graduated to Sacramento, California, and I was a Spanish-speaking missionary. Spanish-speaking. So that was a good experience. One, I mean, definitely one that, uh, I mean, I I grew as an individual. It was it was very difficult. It's one of those things where I was so excited being the youngest of four. I was so excited to get out there and serve. You know, I seen all my all my siblings serve. I had friends. That I was the youngest in my class, or my friends were leaving, and I was just pumped to go. And uh, up until about uh, the evening of my first day, where I thought, "Well, this is real. Like, <laughs> I'm not going home. Like, this is." <laughs> and I remember just that. Uh, what was your first city? Do you? Uh, my first city in Sacramento. I went to Stockton, California. Stockton, yeah, I know where that is. Yeah, yeah. and it was it was a shell shocking experience for me that six the first six to nine months where I really had to sort of grow up and and stop crying about missing mommy and and doing those things. But it was I just. I just felt the the hand of the Lord in that that experience, and uh, I remember it, near the end of my mission, um, there was you know I was been out twenty months or something. I was very comfortable with the lifestyle and the day to day rejection and all those things. But I saw a new missionary that was in the same apartment as me, and I was his district leader. And uh, I remember him just really have I could tell he was having a, a similar time as I was having, and um, in. And so I, I took him out for the day. We we did exchanges, and uh, and I just pulled over to the side, and I just said, "It's hard, isn't it? You know, it's this isn't fun, isn't it?" And and it, in that moment, it's almost like the Lord opened up sort of His whole plan to me that He saw that look what I have helped you go through and become, and it was really a a moment that really laid a foundation in my in my spiritual development. Um, in my testimony and, and and all those things that really helped me progress. So the mission was fantastic. Did he open up and say, "Yeah, it's oh right. yeah, yeah"? We, so we shed were some safe, tears together. You were safe for him, yeah, to be able to share I, how he yeah, felt I, I versus felt maybe way. what the culture wouldn't let him feel. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's one of those things that all the missionaries around you feel. It, it seems like they're just enjoying it. They're just they're used to it. But when you're a new a newbie in the mission field, it can be it can be a lonely time, even though you're with somebody all the time. You know, so that was that was a great experience. So I came home from my mission, um, went to a UVU, which is UVSC at the time, and I I wanted at that point to I'd always dreamed to be a Disney animator. Wow. That was artistic, uh, but not artistic enough. And I quickly realized, ah, maybe I don't think I've got it in me to do that. I don't. It's going to take a lot of work ethic and art, and I'm not sure I'm willing to put that in. So, I changed my major um, after BYU rejected me three times. Ouch! I uh, decided to go to the University of Utah, even though I kept my BYU football season tickets, and uh, went to went to the University of Utah. Went to the business school there. Graduated in marketing. And uh, during that time, I met my wife, Alana, who's from Blackfoot, Idaho, she's a potato farm girl. And um, we married, and uh, we met in a, a, a young single adult ward. So uh, where that was, I'll maybe talk. Were about you later. living at home in West Valley, or did you live by the U? Yeah, no, I, I lived with my parents in, okay. in their basement. Smart. And, yep, Saves money. Yep, and uh, and then met my wife there, who was down here after uh, going to massage school, and. And we got married in Idaho, Idaho Falls Temple and then um, started our, our life together. I graduated and then worked for uh, Young Living, one of the many uh, MLM companies in Utah County. They do essential oils. And I traveled North America putting on uh, presentations for all their distributors. And I did that for three years. And I just never really, uh, I'm an entrepreneur by heart. I never really enjoyed 
working for the man, as they say, and <laughs> cubicle life. And so I was looking for something to do on my own. I found a business partner and I ran a web development company for wow. five years. Uh, we helped small businesses uh, get websites and then promote their business online. And then uh, during that time is when I, and that's maybe uh, another story we can tell, but is when it uh, started af- off as leading LDS. I started that in 2010 and that got bigger and bigger. So I sold my shares in the web development company and uh, now focus on leading saints for the majority of my time. That's yeah. great. So did I cover all the bases there? That's pretty good. <laughs> and um I'm a UU marketing graduate. Oh, nice. So, but just like a generation before you. Nice. Cool. So we have some similarities in, and I'm even thinking of our own stake president's family who came from England and was living in South Africa. I'm not sure if they ever became South Africans that joined the church. Oh, really? Wow. And then, um, you know, my stake president's obviously here in Salt Lake City, so... Lots of good things happen in South Africa. Yeah, that's right. I, I hope to visit someday, for sure. Yeah, you never, I always want to go on my mission there, but I, I went for Sacramento. So. And you would never volunteer this in your introduction, but you've served as a bishop. You've been in a stake presidency, an elders quorum presidency, so you've had some of the callings that come yeah. um, along the line. So tell us the story. This is, I mean, you're an entrepreneur, so you're kind of a creative guy, and, mm-hmm. and so you start, and I'm going to call it Leading Saints, even though you've had a name yeah, change, that's and that's fine. the current name I'm using. Why would you do something like this? Why, I mean, the church would have all the resources for local leaders. Why did you sort of see a gap there or a need or, yeah? because, um, yeah. Yeah, so it all started in that uh, YSA ward where I met my wife. Is uh, It wasn't too long I was in that ward. I was called as the elders quorum president. And, you know, I had been a district leader on my mission, but, I mean, that's a handful of companionships. It's not intense leadership by any means, but it's, it's, it was a good experience. But so this call as an elders quorum president was really my first calling as a leader my friend, in any capacity. And you're single. This is a single yeah, word. I'm single. Yep. So, and it was a huge elders quorum. There was easily more than the 96 elders <laughs> that you're only supposed to have in a quorum. So <laughs> it was, funny. it was huge. And I mean, every week I, you know, I, I got called in and I wanted to do a really good job. You know, I, I've been called and asked to do these things and I didn't want to disappoint anybody. I wanted to excel. I wanted the numbers to go up. I wanted people to enjoy the quorum and, and so forth. Um, but I just felt like, you know, obviously I met my wife during that time and we married and moved out of the ward. But looking back, I just felt like I didn't move the needle and which was odd because I really tried hard. It's really you honest. Know? I did the typical uh, guilt trip lesson. Uh, I remember when I first got called, uh, I was reviewing the home teaching numbers and, and you know, there we were at 39%. And I was disgusted that our elders quorum was only getting 39%. And, you know, I did the, the typical uh, cliche guilt trip lesson and, you know, pounding the podium and, and uh, you know, felt pretty good about myself. Like, yeah, now I'm leading, you know. And, and I, I've spent countless hours in the clerk's office arranging the home teaching visits th- or assignments, right? Thinking if I could just get the right companion with the right, you know, individual, that would be the key. And I did all his work, spent so much time. And then the following month, I looked at the report and we were 38%. <laughs> like we had dropped a percent. I was just like, ah, oh, like what am I missing here, you know? And so obviously we got married, we, we moved out of the ward and I was just sort of discouraged, but, you know, put it behind me, moved on. We moved into, uh, well, we lived in a, a basement shoebox, I, I call it, uh, for a year and uh, served in the primary and those things. Then we moved, uh, we bought a condo in South Salt Lake and Soon thereafter, I was called into the bishopric. I served in the bishopric for two years, and then um, 
that bishop was released and I was called as the high priest group leader. And I thought, oh no. At like 29 or something. Well, <laughs> I was 26. You were 26. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, and I, and I thought, man, here I am again, going to be the, the leader and expect to know what to do and, and expected, I want, I don't want to disappoint anybody. So I thought I'm kind of scared because I really tried hard last time. I'm going to try hard again, but am I going to make a difference? And I couldn't understand why I could walk into a Barnes and Noble store and see bookshelves full of business leadership, life leadership, uh, family leadership. I mean, so many genres of leadership books talking about powerful principles, but nobody was really talking about leadership principles in the context of the church. Of course, you know, we have spiritual leadership topics and things like that, but nobody was talking about how to run a meeting, how to motivate people, you know, how to public speak in a way or teach a lesson that's going to have impact. And so I thought, well, I'm not a leadership expert, but maybe I can create a platform to bring the leadership experts and have these conversations and talk about these principles in the context of, of the church experience. And so I just started, uh, this was in 2010, I just uh, bought a domain name and started to blog. And I would you know, grab a, a book, whether it was Stephen Covey, or I, I think there's a few Dan Pink books in there in the beginning, and, and I would read it, and I'd pick out principles, and I'd, then I'd blog about how these principles may fit or improve a leadership approach in the Latter-day Saint context. And uh, so I blogged for a few years, and then in 2014, as podcasting was becoming more popular, I thought, well, I feel pretty comfortable in front of a mic. I'd been doing these uh, presentations for Young Living, and so I felt comfortable public speaking. And And uh, so I started the podcast, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know about any equipment or anything like that, but I just jumped in. I'm sure you can relate Same. to that experience. <laughs> and, I, um, and I started the podcast in 2014. And then in 2016, we became a, you know, did all the paperwork and to become a nonprofit, 501c3. Um, and then uh, 2018, we um, we changed our name to Leading Saints because that's the thing to do, to get rid of the LDS. And uh, we've been growing, and you know we get as many as uh, 66,000 downloads a month to the podcast and and listeners all over the world and uh, you know similar numbers of people visiting our website. And just every, every week I get two or three emails from individuals, leaders, people saying, wow, you know, I tried this thing that that one guest mentioned and, and we're seeing great success. You know, I got an email from a, a mission president in Guatemala and said, we've, we've used these, you know, resources and it's helped our numbers increase as far as, you know, prospecting and, and those things. So it's, it's just so, uh, tell helpful. our listeners your website address. It's just leading saints.org. Okay. So, um, you'll find all the resources there, everything between uh, the articles we write to, and it's not all me. This is, you know, we try and facilitate others to contribute. And then we have a weekly podcast. We have about 325 episodes um, out there that uh, you can dive into. And then we also do uh, virtual summits or online conferences where we try and tackle one specific topic. So we've done one all about motivation and how to motivate people. We've done all about teaching saints. What's a virtual summit? If I were to yeah. engage, how would I do that? So when we have it, basically, it's just like a normal conference, but it's, it's, it's virtual. So you would go to a, a landing page on the website, and then um, every day we release two sessions. And so you would watch those two sessions during that 24 hours. 
and then the next day there's new a uh, new two s- sessions just like you're attending a, an actual conference you're just not there and i person. assume i need to pay because it's no it's all free it's all if free they want, if they want to attend when it's live and then of course if they want this uh, fundraising mechanism we do if they do want to buy the the recordings and such we we have uh, uh ways to buy that at a very affordable price so and that's one way we fundraise and keep our operation yeah. going so um do you have like a board of directors or a, a you know, I sometimes ask the same question, do I have a kind of a, a group that's guiding me on our mission? And so do you kind of do this alone or do you have kind of yeah. informal people in your life that are saying this is what our next virtual summit should be or our next series of podcasts? Yeah, we, uh, we do have board directors. I've, with the 501c3, legally you're required to have a oh, board of directors. There so, you go. Um, you have to have at least three people and we're about to... Uh, expand to six people on our wow. board. And then we're also creating a board of advisors to also help out with those things. And, and I, my official role is the executive director. So with some of these things, I make a lot of those decisions, but it's definitely something I discuss with the board and make sure that we're on the path to accomplish our mission of helping individuals be better prepared to lead in the church. So, um, what would you say now to your um, elders quorum president self at 38% home teaching now that you've, <laughs> been in this space and have, and would want to have better tools, yeah. talk to your um, oh. 25-year-old self at 38% home teaching. Yeah, you know, As I sense your heart really wants to do the right thing, and it's not a, there's not a commitment issue with you, right? Um, and there's not an ability issue. There's just a, a missing, perhaps, set of skills that right. you didn't have access to. Right. Yeah, if I could go back and talk to myself in that YSA ward, uh, there'd be it'd be a long discussion for sure. But I would I would just start with you know what's most important is your relationship with these individuals. If they can show up every week and and look at their elders quorum president and say, yeah, he knows me. He sat down with me. He's asked me about my life, about what I'm going through. He knows me. They're more likely to want to be there and engage while they're there, right? And so I, I'm a huge proponent of uh, you know one-to-one interviews. Uh, later on, when I was I was elder scorn president after serving as a bishop in, in a state presidency, when they uh, they combined the high priests and elders, I was called the week after to be the elder scorn president in my in that, in that ward, and the only thing I focused on was those one-to-one interviews. And I didn't wait every quarter to have it. I, every week I was out there sitting down with individuals and just saying, you know, what's up? Like, what's what's got you worried? What's uh, What are you enjoying about the quorum? You know, those things, if I can make that connection as their leader, and I saw this as, as my time serving as a bishop, that um, one individual always comes to mind that uh, he he really felt like I knew him as his bishop, right? And, and he not only that, but he felt like, I, I, he's not just my bishop, but he's my friend. And so he would come, and if he wasn't there, he'd always call me and apologize, and I'd understand. But this is a, uh, a gentleman who had just struggled to go to church, gone through, um, you know, he'd been out away from the church a while, but I was getting older and just appreciated this simple relationship he had. And we were a couple decades apart in age, but um, it, it's that relationship. It's that connection as a leader that um, nobody's going to follow you until they know that you actually care about them, that you actually um, want to see them succeed and that you have a, a purpose and a vision worth worth striving for. That's I really like that. And you offered a wonderful prayer before we started, and I'm just feeding the spirit of that prayer. I don't know if, if you measure your success differently now. So when you talked about being an elders quorum president the first time, you talked about your home teaching percent. And I assume that that's 
probably the same way I did when I was a elders corn president. I measured my success based on that number. It was pretty high up there on how I thought a good elders corn president would perform was mm-hmm. that number. And I wonder if you then just describing that, if you'd say, well, my measure of success is my relationship with the elders. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that fair? And that home teaching number, I don't think we report that anymore the right. way we do with wouldn't really exist. So talk more about that. Yeah. So with with the numbers, I mean, any in, I think it's human nature when you are put in a position, whether a secular position or a church position, you want to you want to say, you know, what am I measured by? What am I looking to accomplish? What does success look like? And <coughs> sorry, my throat's getting dry on me. Hate to make you edit, but <clears throat> uh, you know you're always looking t- for a, a measuring stick, and it's natural to go to. Well, they're asking me about home teaching numbers. At least that's what they did then, and so that's where I'm going to measure myself back. But I think the biggest um, miss that we make, whether as individuals or as leaders, is that is creating clear purpose and a vision for an organization. Um, for example, uh, when I was bishop, I, I remember sitting on the stand. Uh, one Sunday, and we were in a South Salt Lake, very transient ward. I was made bishop after I served as as high priest group leader. So you're about years. Were you still in your twenties? I was 28 when I was. It sounds like there. President Monson stuff. Well, I I I just got it done early in life, so I okay, the rest of my life off. Well, <laughs> not, but uh, and that was the nature of the ward. Uh, just that we had condos and apartment complexes, so the leadership was always young, right? And so I remember sitting on the stand, and I was looking over the congregation and the inspiration came to me and said, how can you lead them if you don't even know them? And I thought that's interesting. So I went through the whole ward directory and I marked every household that I did not know that they were simply a name on the rolls. And you think as the Bishop, I would have the best idea of most people in the ward. And we, we came and I, I counted them all up and we had about 263 households that I, there were just names on the rolls. I don't know if they're there, if they were gone, if they wanted to come to church, if they didn't want to come to church, I didn't know anything about it. And then I took it to the ward council and we talked about it. And then we took it to the ward and we talked about it. And this became like the focus and vision of our ward for about nine months. And it was in every meeting we talked about the fact that how can we lead them if we don't even know them? And we organized activities and uh, efforts to go out and, and knock on doors and just see, introduce ourselves. And, you know, if they, you know, I knocked on a few doors where they say, uh, I, I introduced myself as the bishop and he said, I have zero interest in talking to you. I said, great. Well, I just want you to know, I know you're here and we care about you. And if you need to, to reach me, this is my card, right? And then uh, other individuals that that would go out and search. Well, obviously in transit ward, a lot of those records were just, they had moved. So we we shipped them out. Others we were able to introduce to the ward, invite to certain activities. And over that time, we got that number down to uh, less than 30 households uh, that we were able to maintain, you know, as people came and went. And what happened is by creating that vision and that purpose in that ward, it unified everybody. It gave people purpose and engaged them rather than, well, let's see, I'm bishop. I'll make sure the lights are on and the doors are unlocked and make sure we have bread for the sacrament, right? Like, so if I could go back to that young elder or that young president Frankum in the, that elders quorum, I would say, you know, it's about the relationships, but also you need a clear purpose and vision and you can't just default to home teaching or ministry. It, it's gotta be something very specific and personal to this quorum, to the makeup of this quorum and, 
and something that's that's going to impact each individual heart to heart rather than just this general uh, administrative function of let's count the numbers or do this or that. Does that make sense? It does. And what give us an idea of type of vision statements you'd consider as an elder scorn president back in your prior self? Yes. Uh, um, like the second time I was an elder scorn president? Or? Yeah. Okay. But you actually implemented or what you wish you had yeah. done first so, time? So a lot of times it came down to, you know, I've heard of vision statements like um, we're here to to, to know each other, to unify each other um, heart to heart, to know everybody's name. Our, our purpose is to create a, um, to, to understand the doctrine and to teach by the Spirit, right? Some of these things, sometimes you can get too vague, but it's funny, as, as you probably know, when you ask a return missionary what his missionary purpose is, you could wake him up in the middle of the night and ask him, and he could rattle it off word for word, no problem. But there's actually a, a purpose of, of quorums in the handbooks, but nobody knows what it is, right? And I wish I, I would be a, a better uh, leadership guy if I could rattle that off, but it basically says that a, a purpose of the quorum is to uh, teach gospel principles uh, and and to create unity among uh, among brethren, and so, but nobody has taken the time to even infuse that into that quorum culture. And so, um, as far as like examples of of uh, vision statements, is just um, looking at your area where we were in a transient area. That's what we needed there. Now, if I took that and moved it to my holiday elders quorum, they everybody there'd be no purpose for that, but that may be more of like, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, one thing our ward does is they do these walkabouts during the summer. And, uh, that could be part of a vision and purpose of unifying the ward. We talk a lot about unity in general. I think there's always someone that raises their hands and says, wish we were more unified. And that's what Zion is, but we never take the time to adequately put the vision together to accomplish that. That's really very, very helpful. And a couple of comments. One is when you talked about the questions you asked those elders, those were open-ended questions. They couldn't answer them with a yes or no. Yeah. That was a few minutes ago you said that, and I thought how thoughtful that is and gets the conversation going. And I'm reflecting when I was a singles word bishop and called out of my footprint to another part of the valley. I didn't know anybody on the rolls. Mm, yeah. We had about 300, and I felt impressed to do something similar to what you did. I wanted and that's obviously a YSA singles, very transient, even though we didn't have any apartments, everybody lived at home. I felt like everything starts with a clean ward list. Yeah. And so if I'm going, everything sort of assumes you've got a clean ward list, but if I've got a list of 300 and 80 aren't even in the ward anymore, then think of all the resources I'm potentially assigning to those 80 people that don't even exist. Right. Um, home teachers and all the different things. And so we felt really strongly um, to really clean up that list. And we found, we moved about 80 people out hmm. um, uh, and got our list down to about 220. That was actually people that we had confirmed were in our footprint. And then everything then, the limited resources you have, because it didn't change the number of active people, you know, the number of attended church was still the same, but our ward membership went from 300 to 220. Mm. And so the active people then were focused on the people that were legitimately there. And then we probably helped other people like you did because we moved their record to where it should be. So the local priesthood could and really society could engage with them. Yeah. So there was something very practical about what you did and what we both sort of did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing is you just really have to look at your ward, the circumstances you're in, and create some type of vision and purpose rather than just 
you know, what we do is we meet every week and someone has a lesson and then we go home. You know, there's, there's gotta be more to that because individuals as, as Thoreau said, like men leave, lead lives of quiet desperation. Like they desperately want someone to take them somewhere, uh, a leader to put a vision out there that's exciting to march towards, even would be exciting to fall short of. Um, and I think, I think as individuals so up to church, they're, they are, they're desperate to be a part of something special. And so I think leaders can, can give that to them and it can, it can be life-changing. Has you, um, have you had the church reach out and say, thanks for doing this, Kurt, or (laughs) as it, or we wish you weren't doing this. Have you gotten any feedback officially from the church on what you're doing? Um, it's hard to say what, uh, you know, official communication looks like, but I mean, I had met the priesthood department asked me to, to come down and, and meet with them. And they, they were very encouraging and asked me questions and so forth. And, and what I've, um, found is that, uh, you know, as I've interacted just with, from my past callings and, and various, uh, interactions with some general authorities, a lot of them have been, been very encouraging. Some of them have sort of, sort of raised their eyebrows and, and I always assure them, I said, listen, if you ever want me or our organization to stop, we'll stop. We're not here, you know, to, to, uh, upset anybody or, or burn bridges with the church or anything, but we're just trying to create a community of, individual leaders that want to help each other succeed. And so, um, you know, we never claim to be official or endorsed or any of that thing, but, uh, every, every communication I've received is always concluded with, okay, we'll keep going here. You know, we know your heart's in the right place and we're, we're grateful for it. So I just think there's ways to formally minister like you've had with callings. And, mm-hmm. and then I think there's ways to informally, um, you know, help the work. And so I love the way sometimes we're inspired to do things that aren't through a formal church calling that help the church and help maybe more importantly, the individual members of the church do better. Yeah. And I think that's really consistent with the doctrine of Christ. So, yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of programs and auxiliaries that have come from, you know, sort of that, uh, from the grassroots of, you know, primary was started by a member and, and the church adopted it. Now I don't expect, nor do I necessarily want the church to adopt what we're doing, but, um, but, you know, the, again, this we always feel like sometimes we can feel like callings are in place so that we all stay in our lane and we don't, you know, we don't overreach. But I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, you know, where we can offer help, we should offer help. And we've many of us made covenants that uh, will offer our, our abilities to grow the kingdom of God. And and this has definitely been <laughs> I don't do this for the fame or the money or the I mean, this is not something that uh, this is this is a burden a lot of the time uh, to do. And so. Uh, you know, I'm definitely doing this because I feel uh, led by the spirit. There's been many special experiences where I felt like, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to keep doing this, but the Lord has said, no, we, we definitely uh, need you to keep doing this. So I keep doing it. So. I love that. And it is really needed what you're doing. And the podcasts I've listened to have been very helpful to me. And um, I recognize that I, I don't, I need, you know, when I served as a YSA bishop, mm-hmm. I recognized that I didn't, just because I was set apart and had the priesthood keys, I didn't have all the tools that I needed to fully minister the way that I perhaps, you know, matched my mantle. Yeah. And I recognized that from a pragmatic standpoint that I needed more tools and I was looking for resources. And personally, I think we're very good on the administrative side. As I went through my training, um, and rightly so, we have to be strong administratively. We have to, that's a part of our stewardship responsibilities as local leaders. But this pastoral side is the term I've used to sort of describe the non-ministering response, the non-administering responsibility. Yeah. That's where I, I lack skill. 
Yeah. And often I needed better tools in that area. Give us some idea, Kurt, of just since you're interacting with so many local leaders, um, I don't give us some of the ideas that are topical. Just give us voice to release society presence, young women's leaders, different groups, or maybe it's the same issue for all groups. Just talk about what they're working on. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of things, maybe not necessarily working on, but what they're worrying about. Because like, worrying about. Yeah. Like what I said is, um, you know, as a young Elder Scorn president, I, I really wanted to do a good job. And sometimes I got my the, my own way of, of doing that and I didn't realize it. And so, you know, there's things with, uh, you know, individuals that maybe go through uh, a, a transition of faith or, or really begin to wrestle with some of their foundational beliefs that they've always believed in. They may turn to their Relief Society president for answers or for support or for something, and that leader doesn't know what to say, but they really want to say something. They really want to help that person, and sometimes it gets awkward, and then it's easier just to sort of create distance there because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help. Um and then, you know, with... Is uh, that issue increasing? Is it about the same? Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, I mean, I think it'd be hard to argue that it isn't increasing. I mean, it's, uh, it seems like uh, everybody knows, has a close family member or a close friend who has gone through a, a, a strong wrestle with with some of the, the beliefs and tenets of the church, you know. And, uh, and so I think we're all not sure... Uh, I mean, I don't want to speak generally or, or, or generalize, but um, I think we all just, especially in the leadership capacity, we want to be the leader who that individual says, you know, I was unsure, I had lost hope, but then I met with Bishop so-and-so or Sister so-and-so, and they said some things, they were non-judgmental, and I was able to to figure out my next step, whether that, whichever direction that was. What advice would you give to me if I were a bishop and wanted to be prepared to help people that are with have transitions of faith. Yeah, you know, I remember a time uh, during my time as as a as a bishop where um, an individual came in and he sat in my office, and this was actually the the Sunday before I had stood and, and uh, reminded the ward that the bishop's office isn't just for the transgressor or the person who did something really embarrassing that they have to come confess. The bishop's office can actually be somewhere you come and just share something you're wrestling with or struggling with, right? And so he, this individual actually came in after that, was so pleased to see him there, and he said, you know what, Bishop, I've done nothing wrong, uh, but I want you to know that I've served a mission I went through, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've gone through all the the uh, advancements of the priesthood and so forth. And I have never really believed that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And uh, I'm not sure how to articulate that to you or to my family. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, you want to be, well, let me just turn to the scripture that will solve all your problems. And <laughs> of course, again, I'm 28, 29 years old this time. I, I, I barely know what I'm doing. Um, but I remember being uh, prompted to just congratulate him on being on recognizing where he's at and just being real in his faith journey and and saying do you I remember telling him there's there's many individuals that come here every week that partake of the sacrament that that uh, magnify their calling of the best ability and they haven't yet reached a level of of connection understanding with their faith as you have and so that's okay I believe that if an individual sincerely searches for truth, it may lead them out of the church, but I truly believe if they keep that um, keep that journey, I believe it'll lead them back here. And uh, maybe they don't, maybe they do, but 
I just, you know, we, we sometimes, we have this culture of when somebody converts to the church, we love to hear a good conversion story. We love to hear how they maybe stood up to their family when their family kicked them out. But when they leave us, suddenly it's not a, a happy story anymore. But I think we need to take the same approach as saying, congratulations, like you are looking at your faith real. Now keep going, keep searching, you know, make sure that you're always looking for truth and and you're looking for beauty, um, and that you are connecting with your God in some way. And uh, the, I mean, I think I really believe an individual needs an anchor, uh, a connection to God that anchors them in something. And it's those that sort of don't really find that anchor that I, I really worry about. But I just congratulated this individual and said, you should be happy that you're you're in this wrestle. I mean, there's, there's deeper knowledge and perspective to gain here. And uh, I've worked a lot with your brother and he's a, he's a champion at this, uh, this, uh, dynamic of talking with individuals, being empathetic, just not being too fast, just listening, you know? And I remember being that youth and having that leader that always had the perfect scripture for every question I asked. And sometimes when I, when, and then when I became the leader, I, I sort of wanted to be that leader that had all the answers that had just the scripture to turn to. And it took a while to to just be comfortable with, you know, saying I don't I don't know what what your future holds. I don't know where it is that uh, your your faith journey is going to lead you. But man, I've I've had a very positive experience here. I've found a level of faith. That doesn't mean that you have to somehow you know take on this faith or, or duplicate my faith. But I'm just glad you're here. And regardless of what happens, I hope you always feel comfortable sitting in the pews in this church because. This is if I want you to find your God here, and I want you to be able to feel comfortable worshiping here, and and progressing here. So, it's I'm, it's so difficult that dynamic, but I'm really touched by that. I mean, I actually brought a couple of ears tears to my eyes as I, as he had the courage to open up, and as I've talked with people that want to share authentically how they feel, and they call it the bishop's lottery, as you know, yeah, and. <laughs> And we as bishops or local leaders respond differently to those situations. We may not have had much training ahead of time. How do you handle this situation? And so some, and I just love what you said, yeah. because I, I'm guessing that took a lot of guts on that guy. Yeah, well, and, and I love there was no shame in your answer. Yeah. You validated how he felt and you didn't shame him for feeling that way. And you didn't sort of turn it into a worthiness interview or a, checklist of wondering what he hadn't been doing right to mm -hmm. get him to that spot, which mm -hmm. would just make him feel defensive. Yeah. And I love the way you set it up with your comments over the pulpit um, and the power of creating safe places. If you're a local leader by what you say, um, maybe even in social media can be another way. If your ward members are connected with you on social media, that's an, probably rare, mm -hmm. maybe more in a YSA ward, you could do that. Any more thoughts on that? Because I just think that's a really good moment. And then I think sometimes wards kind of share privately just what it's like to talk to the bishop. Yeah. <laughs> and the bishop kind of gets a reputation in the ward. I sense that in YSA wards. And so the YSAs kind of know if he's a guy you can go there or maybe you can't. Yeah. And so I'm assuming that these kind of experiences, people thought I can go talk to this guy. Yeah. And, and I'm sure there's individuals listening right now that are thinking, well, that's great. You know, great story. That, and I wish my bishop was like that or responded that way, but my bishop's not. And and I hear that often. And what I would say to that individual is that find in your heart, just like you want some level of empathy coming your direction, Good. to have uh, some uh, what I call upward empathy to our, our leaders, that sometimes we we need to be empathetic. And there's um, 
there's something special about the bishop's office. And I get there's some controversy around it. You know, there's always maybe a headline of, about what goes on there and, and what type of energy you should happen there. But the way I see that room, I'd often tell people when they come in here, you can do anything in this room. You can swear if you want. You can yell at me if you want. You can uh, get upset. You can cry. You can you can be happy. Anything you want is appropriate in this room. And I, I saw all the ranges of, of those emotions. But I see that bishop desk as almost an altar where individuals can come, whether it's a transgression, whether it's a, a struggle, whether it's a, a doubt or concern or, or tough situation, that that's an altar that they can lay it on and we can talk it through. And, um, and so my encouragement was, it would be for any individual, get to that bishop's office. Even if that bishop, you don't like him, he never listens, he's not compassionate, get there and don't worry about him showing compassion on you, but begin to show compassion on him because I promise you he needs it. The one thing that my leadership ex experience has told me, has taught me is that I always, always, always give the leader the benefit of the doubt. And I know there's some interesting leaders out there, different personalities. Maybe there are some really mean bishops out there, but I try to always give them the benefit of the doubt because being in those positions I remember, I remember being the counselor in the bishopric and feeling like, oh, yeah, I sort of got, I, I know what the bishop does. I know what he goes through. And then I moved that seat over to be the bishop, and I had no idea. There's so much on that that bishop, and I think it would bless everybody's life to get in that bishop's office, recognize it as a, as almost a, um, a you know, I don't want to say an ordinance room, but a room that maybe can contain a similar spirit, has an altar there called the bishop's desk, and... Um, to, to begin to show empathy to that bishop in some way. And I feel like we would all grow personally, regardless of the, the bishop lottery that, that we've pulled, is uh, show that upper empathy to that bishop. I love that. That's great. Talk more about, I'm going to go back to this young man. I, well, maybe it wasn't a young man that opened up about Joseph Smith and, and his honest feelings there and you giving him space to feel that way. Give us some other principles that you would share with other leaders that are for members that are, you know, where would you go next with, you know, after you've kind of honored how he felt, where would you go next with that conversation or the next interview or? Yeah. You know, I, I think we're, we're getting past this, but maybe we're not, but just being, you know, realizing that you cannot uh, influence that person uh, very specifically. For example, you can't, a lot of people see, well, see their testimony as sort of, you know, they can um, point their testimony at them and, and fire, and maybe that will change their heart right before them. And a testimony is important, uh, has a role, but it's not going to, just by the bearing of it, isn't going to magically make those doubts go away. And so oftentimes I would just position myself as the, the number one thing you do is uh, profess a lot of love, that there's a place for you here, regardless of, of what you think, and and then stand by as a resource and say, what can I help you help you do next? And being comfortable with the idea that some individuals may need to step away from from the church, from activity for a while, and have faith in that journey. I often tell people that we it's so easy to want to save the individual, and we forget they already have a savior. It is our role to love them and encourage them and have faith that the Savior's got it. He's, he's got their back, and even if they need to step away, I mean, there are so many stories of individuals who stepped away from the church uh, and, and lived lives of various colors and, and uh, backgrounds, and a lot of them have come back, and that's great. And some don't, and that's okay, but I think there's so much we could learn by just stepping back and having faith that um, 
that Christ has got this. He knows them individually and will always be reaching out to them, and we just need to make sure they have a, a loving place to land as well and that they can um, feel at home there, feel at peace, and feel like, you know what, I don't believe. Maybe they'll say, I don't believe. I don't. Uh, I have a rough, t- uh, difficult time with the Book of Mormon, with polygamy, with you know, feeling whatever issue it is, but I know my bishop knows me. I know he cares about me, and if I ever need to reach out to him, he'll be there. And uh, I think that, especially if there's any bishops listening, I have a, a, a note in my my notebook here that I look over every night. It's just a habit. It's called, and I call it my "Be There Bishop" list. And I've gone through my mind and thought of everybody that I was a bishop to, that I still need to connect with. And there's about ten to twelve people there, and I often pray pray about them, think on them. And these are people. Some of them I haven't talked in nine months, a year, right? But I feel like that role as a bishop is is so. Um, so sacred and so special that, you know, they say once a bishop, always a bishop. Well, um, I hope those individuals know that they can call me at any time. And, and they, and some have reached out to me. And again, not that I was like this perfect bishop. I figured it out. I said all the right things. There were many disasters and train wrecks that I created in, in that office by things I said, especially as a 28 year old marketing major that was <laughs> called to, to serve. But, um, but again, goes back to that connection and feeling like, my bishop's a resource, my leader's a resource, um, and I and I hope that they can just welcome me in and be quiet for a minute and not feel like they have to solve it with a, a perfect scripture or quote or conference talk and just mourn with me, right? Mourn with those that mourn. And I often like to use the phrase, doubt with those that doubt. And that doesn't mean the bishop acts like he's got doubts or um, is more uh, you know, skeptical or uh, cynical to some of the beliefs, but just sit with them in their doubt. And just think, wow, that must hurt. What is it like? Tell me about it. What is it like coming into church? What is it like coming into a core meeting? Um, what don't you like about it, right? What I mean, what? just try and understand their feeling, and that's what invites the Spirit. And then when they feel like they, I'm connected to my bishop, then the Lord, I mean, he's got this. He'll take over. I'm really touched by what you've just said. Well, thanks. Um I wish I'd heard some of that when I started being a YSA bishop. I didn't have, no one ever talked like you just did. And I, and now that deeply resonates with me. And I just think that's what Christ taught and what Christ did and, and how healing it is. You said something really, tell me what it's like to doubt. Mm -hmm. Tell me what that feels like walking into church every Sunday that you want to be here, but you're not sure about your testimony of Joseph Smith. Yeah. You know, uh, probably, and I don't think that some people I think feel like, well, that's going to increase the wedge between them and the church if you talk about this stuff. And I feel I, I probably would have agreed with that at one point. Now I don't think it does. I think it's key to helping them stay into the church to talk about and with a trusted friend, a trusted priesthood leader, versus not talking about it or or them finding community and people that live left that will talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the most listened to uh, podcast episodes I've done was actually with uh, my last second counselor when I was bishop. His name was Heath. And uh, I mean, the, the, the interview's remarkable, but um, he Heath had left the church right at the end of our time serving together. And later on... Your own uh, counselor. My own counselor, right. And, and, and so um, now some people think, well, of course he did. You know, but... Um, 
But then later on, we, we had gone to lunch after that, and I'm just trying to understand his experience. And, and one day he said, like, well, if you ever want to interview me, I'd be open to that. I'm like, really? You wouldn't let me interview you? So we had this interview where it's just two friends talking about um, each other's journeys, primarily Heath's journey of trying to understand where he came from, why why he went down this path, and just to hear the heartache and and that it led him to a state of depression where he, he, and it was really the catalyst of it all was me calling him to the bishopric because he felt like if I'm going to be a leader in this church, I need to be able to stand and testify boldly that Joseph Smith was a prophet, that the Book of Mormon is true. And that if I didn't do that on fast and testimony meeting, everybody would notice and they would figure out that my faith is weak. And so that drove him to obsessing over getting a clear, powerful witness but as we learned from Dr. Covens, to you know, some is to to believe, and others it is to know. And for Heath, he's more, maybe more on the the belief. Well, um, you know, he's he's removed himself from the church, but I still I just talked to him a few weeks ago, and he's still like uh, in that journey. And he knows that I'm not gonna you know slyly ask, well, have you you know he moved back east? I'm not gonna ask, well, have you met your bishop yet? Or you know, I'm just saying, you know, how's life? What what are you finding? Uh, where are you finding happiness? Where are you, where are you finding purpose, right? Because I know, and Heath is so sincere that I, I have a lot of faith that he'll he'll figure these things out and maybe he'll come come back to some of the, the covenants he's, he's made. But if not, like he knows that I'm always there for a conversation and, and I, at least I want to be that friend. And I'm sure I made some mistakes along the way, but it was a fantastic discussion between two friends about um, somebody who appeared to be very orthodox that was really wrestling inside. I love that story, and I think of, you know, you love Heath because he deserves to be loved, mm -hmm. not because your love will bring him back to the church, and he knows that about you. I would guess if Heath were here, he'd say, yeah, I know Kurt just loves me, yeah. and it's I not so. about me coming back to the church. It's just that I'm worthy of love, and Kurt doesn't see me as someone outside of the church. He just sees me as a friend worthy of love and worthy of interest in his life and seeing the good in his life. Yeah. And then not that you're doing this in manipulative way, because I know you love Heath. If, you know, sometimes I think the people then, if, if he thought maybe I could come back, he's going to open up to you maybe first, yeah, I you hope know, so. because you, your circle of love for him extends further than his activity in the church. And so he hasn't sort of, he might open up to you first. Yeah. Versus someone that said, you know, you're versus someone that made shaming comments as he's left. And he may, may be harder to open up to somebody like that because they've gave him no space. Just some thoughts as people want to come back. Yeah. It, it really is all about the, the relationship. Um, you know, I, I talked with two, two parents and, and their son who left the church, uh, you know, served in a bishopric and served a mission and, the, the the mother's number one regret is that she didn't call her son. When, when he shared that with them that he was stepping away from the church, her biggest regret is that she didn't call him on the phone right away and just say, I love you, no matter what, I love you. I'd love to have further conversations about this, maybe if you want to, but it's so important, you know, no matter what, I love you. And that message sometimes gets lost or we assume that they know that, right? So it's it's powerful, simple phrase to, to use in some of these instances. Yeah, and my older brother that you're talking about, Dave, has taught me, if I can repeat it right, with his adult children, he wants to have relationships not based on outcomes. He wants to have relationships because he loves his kids. Yeah. 
And so if you have adult kids and he has a few that have stepped away, he's sort of, you know, said, I'm going to have relationships not based on a certain outcome church-wise. I'm just going to have relationships based on having a relationship and I can control that. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah. And that's really the, um, that's the, the, the model of, of God, right? I mean, that's what, uh, he loves unconditionally. Uh, obviously, he gives us commandments. He wants us to, to repent and so forth. I, I even had a personal experience where a few a few months ago, I was um, I noticed that I was really wrestling with my personal scripture study, where I was only I was I wasn't always doing it every day, and I kind of was beating myself up about that, thinking, oh, "Here I am, like I'm, uh, you know, I have a testimony. I know I'm supposed to be doing my scripture study, and it was almost like it was removed from me." Uh, that that desire, that that passion to turn to the scriptures, and I, sometimes I would force myself to sit down at my desk, open my scriptures, and just start reading, it's and honest. it was still empty, and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, a few weeks later, I was sitting in, in a, a leadership conference. It was a, a Christian-based leadership conference, so uh, they were they were playing some Christian music and hymns and and whatnot, and I was sitting there, uh, waiting for the session to start, and I had no idea I was about to have a profound experience because. As I was listening to these words, feeling the, sp- the the words of the the song, feeling the spirit, I felt this strong uh, prompting uh, uh, the phrase come to me saying, "If you never read your scriptures again, I will still love you. If you never read your scriptures again, I will still love you." And I was like baffled that here I am. I mean, I've, I've got this grace message figured out. I have preached it. I have I've taught it. I have articulated it in so many ways but I was still missing it, or the adversary was still trying to get me to check the box of scripture study, because that's what good Mormon boys do. And if you don't check the box, there's something wrong. If you don't check it daily, there's something wrong. But the Lord, I realize, is the one that took that that passion away from me for a time, because he needed to teach me that I don't, I don't want you to go to the scriptures just to check a box. I want you to go to the scriptures to worship me to connect with me, to have a relationship with me. And ever since then, like I have benefited cool. so much from my scripture study because it's not about the checkbox. And I've, and I'm always forcing myself to get away from the checkbox. And, and it's difficult at times, um, you know, growing up in, in a, in a culture like this, where there's a lot of behavior focus, which I makes sense to me. I mean, go on a mission, you know, keep the law of chastity, don't drink this, do drink that, whatever, right? And so it can suddenly morph into a gospel of behaviors and a gospel of earning grace, right? And we all know that that's not doctrinally sound, that of course we believe in the grace of Christ, that of course he loves us. But sometimes the the weeds of culture boil up and and confuse us, and that's where I was. I mean, I thought I was doing okay, but I, I was turning the scriptures to check a box. But the Lord had to remind me that if I never read the scriptures again, he will still love me. If if you don't go on a mission, God will still love you. If you leave the church, God will still love you. And to me, it's been such a blessing to be in that state and then approach him in worship, and then approach, then open his Book of Mormon and, and open his Bible and to connect with him because it's about relationships. And that's like such a core leadership principle is building relationships with the divine and building relationships with each other. That's cool. It's really cool. I love, I've never, you know, little lights have gone off that why do I read the scriptures and is it to fill a checkbox or is it because it's it's the end in that case or is it the means to, you know, show God that I love him yeah. and to connect with him and to receive personal revelation in my life. And 
if I go down the road you just suggested, it's a much better reason for reading the scriptures. Yeah, um, you know, it's thirty-eight percent home teaching about a yeah. means. Is that the end, or is it, is the goal behind that higher home teaching was relationships and helping people to Christ? But as you kind of put that aside, said I'm going to have relationship with the elders. Yeah, that is where you can really impact people for good. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know I often want to be I, I often go to my scripture study because I want to you know research the the Hebrew roots of this word and maybe I can further understand and then raise my hand in Sunday school and and you know have a deeper understanding of this gospel perspective or I can sound more like a BYU professor and and obviously there's there's great insight in that and there's purpose for that but I was missing that relationship with my God and that's what needed to be firmly put in place and then you know if He needs me to know the the root of that word or the Latin meaning of this word or how that doctrine connects this doctrine, he'll show me that. But first it starts with that relationship. I love that. And uh, I got a little cynical one day and said Sunday school shouldn't be the best answer club on Twitter one day and <laughs> and just recognize that at times the 10% that sort of have the Latin, the root of the uh-huh. sort of are the ones that shine because they have sort of this factual understanding of mm-hmm. the scriptures and the other 90% of us that don't have that don't really shine in Sunday school because we don't have the most insightful, factual, historical answer. And I think, well, Sunday school probably isn't for that. Sunday school should be a way for us to come closer to Christ and be able to share our experiences and have authentic connections and not just the best answer yeah. club to be yeah. kind of cynical. Because doctrine is important. I mean, the understanding of doctrine is crucial to our progress and becoming more like our Father in Heaven, but it it just will not work without that foundation of, yeah, but I know my God, I've connected with him. I know he loves me and look how he can, he might sanctify me. Right. And I love the scripture. I want to say it's in numbers. Um, but it says, you know, sanctify yourself, um, because you'll see remarkable things, something that effect, obviously not, it's not verbatim, but, um, it's important for us not to go to the scriptures to, to check the box, but because we need to be sanctified, that we need to become become more so that we can accept and, and witness his glory in, in our lives and in the world. What would you say to a leader that's overwhelmed that, you know, back to you as an elders corn president, I've got a hundred elders on my list. There's no way I can really have a meaningful relationship with all 100 or a bishop that's got 300. And sometimes just the, it feels overwhelming. Yeah. Um, uh, what would you say to an overwhelmed local leader? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I was uh, suddenly called as that YSA bishop of the ward that had a hundred elders, I would call another elder scorn president. I mean, the reality is, is there's a certain point where you just can't handle it all. And I remember this feeling in when I was called to the state presidency. You know, I went from I, I loved the the dynamic of being a bishop and like the the intimacy and connection you feel with each member, and you're able to shake hands before a meeting and really get to know people, go on visits. You know, suddenly I'm in a stake presidency and there's four or 5,000 members in the boundaries of our stake. And I'd go to each war, a different ward each week. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't remember anybody's name here. And I sort of wrestled with that for a time. But then I realized, no, I'm not the leader of everybody in my stake. I'm really the the leader of the, the eight bishops that are in my stake. And I'm going to connect with them, right? And so... Um, one, if if a leader feels like there's just too many people here, go to your bishop or somebody and say, what do you think about splitting this elders quorum, having two elders quorums? Or um, or if it's a ward, you know, start that ball rolling. But um, the the simple, like there's nothing, if I was called as an elders quorum president today, I would do nothing else but one-to-one interviews. Every 
Sunday, every Sunday, or, you know, there, I wouldn't worry about the elders quorum activity. I wouldn't worry about, um, you know, finances, budgets, or whatever administrative duty there is. I would delegate that all to my, my counselors. And the only thing I would focus on is that one-to-one connection. Because again, if that individual feels like their leader knows them, they will march into any battle with them. And I love the example of how Captain Moroni did that in, in Alma 43, where um, their hearts, you know, there they are facing the Lamanites and they're about to shrink and flee. And the Captain Moroni reminds them of the purpose that they're there and points to the title liberty. And I have no doubt that each soldier in that army felt like he knows me. Of course I'm going to go to battle. And they prevailed. They marched with faith, knowing the purpose of what they were doing and who was leading them. And that's what succeeded. So it's that do nothing else but that one-to-one connection. I like that, Kurt, and I think we can all do that. And I'm thinking of the advice I got from my brother who had been a stake president, a different brother, (laughs) when I was YSA bishop, and he said, delegate all the administrative stuff to your counselors. Don't do any administrative stuff. Your job is to get to know those YSAs. And I love that's exactly the advice that you're giving right now is if you're the Elders Corn President, the Society President, young women's, young men's, you know, you do have counselors, and I think all the administrative stuff that really isn't going to change anybody's lives that can sort of consume you. And if you're good administratively, you might naturally go there yeah. and say, this is kind of my spot. I'm actually right. very good with administration. Mm-hmm. And so there might be a temptation not to delegate that if you're really good at it, especially if the people you delegate it to maybe aren't quite as good. Mm-hmm. then your natural inclination may be to get involved. But I agree with you where you can change the most lives is the personal interaction. The story comes to mind of our own elders corn president, Steve, in our neighborhood. He, he talked about an elders corn about visiting one of the longtime inactive men in our ward who I've known him and for the 20 plus years I've lived here. And Steve told us in elders corn without mentioning his name, he says, I went and had lunch with this guy. And, you know, I asked him why he doesn't come. And that guy got tears in his eyes because mm. he said, Steve, I've lived in this ward over 20 years and no one's ever asked me that question. Yeah. So and simple. I think yeah. of the good shepherd knows his sheep well enough that he would know where to find them. And he's got to know the story of why this guy left. And you have the maturity and the tools to hear difficult stories of why someone's left. And I don't think it triggers you. It doesn't generate a faith crisis. You've kind of heard enough of those stories that you have ability to handle those stories. But I don't think a lot of our members, they they don't quite have the tools to do that, or they don't want to ask that question because they're worried they might hear something. And I think it's any advice on just how we can get to the space where we can hear a story like that, and it doesn't cause us to be defensive, or it doesn't cause us to sort of be stressed. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I think it just... I think it, it, it goes back to the, the doctrine, right? There's always a doctrinal core to, Good. to all these these problems. And it really is like, do you really believe that Christ is the Savior? Enough to like release and um, yield all control over that individual's future and salvation to know that Christ has them. And I think you just have to start in that place knowing that, you know what, it's just not my job to save this individual. And if we can come from that point, then those conversations change, right? If they're, you know, I, and nice, <laughs> um, I hear individuals sort of slyly, you know, drop hints or, you know, have you thought about going to church or have you, you know, just these weird things that we do. And again, we just have to get rid of that. We just have to say, you know, 
what what is making you come alive in your life? What's got you excited and how can I be a part of it? You know? And um, but we just have to settle and be okay with the doctrine that Jesus is the Christ. And it sounds so elementary, and of course we know that, but are we acting like that? You know, are we 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 showing that? And I get there's moments where Christ needs us as a tool. He needs us to move, he needs us to take action. But um as long as we establish that love there and that relationship first, then those actions make sense, right? The, I mean, that individual could have easily thought, oh, he's just cha- taking me out to lunch because he, he wants me to come back to church, right? And But I'm sure there was many events leading up You're to right. that. There was a lot of trust yeah, that, that allowed him to say, hey, do you want to go to lunch? He'd be like, yeah, sure, I'd love that. And then to ask that question. Where if he would have knocked on the door and said, hey, I want to know why you don't come to church, and he doesn't know him, he's not going to say, you know, nobody's asked me that, and get teary-eyed, teary-eyed. <laughs> you know, it's like... The relationship had to come first, and then he could ask that question. But uh, we just have to be calm and stand still and know that Jesus is the Christ and he's got him. And I think of faith versus fear-based decisions and the great faith that what you just said taught and the power of our doctrine. And I love the way you went to Christ is everybody's Savior. And I'm going to leave that at Christ's feet. I don't need to save this person that Mm -hmm. appears to be off the covenant path. Mm I'm going to do what I can do. And at times then, once that relationship established, there might be promptings to your point yeah. where we're a tool in the Savior's. But I think I, my experience is those, I'm much more effective when I have a relationship um, to then receive and act on those impressions. Yeah. Any other thoughts you'd give to local leaders, um, family members, if they've got someone, we you know we use different terms, transition of faith, faith crisis, mini faith crisis, this umbrella term of people. Uh, as far as like what to, yeah, what the, to say, yeah. how to help. Um, you know, it's just, you know, going back to as far as the the jargon we use, I mean, I, it's it's more often not that we use the term faith crisis. And, and I try not to get too obsessed with what we call it. But, um, you know, I, I like to see it as uh, people, their faith is transitioning. And I think that term has often been... Uh, tag to individuals who are leaving the church, like you're transitioning out of the faith. But my faith is transitioning all the time, right? And I've never, uh, you know, uh, not had that, that temple recommend or never, uh, you know, stepped away from the basic tenets, whatever, but my faith is always transitioning. And if it's not, there is a problem if it's not transitioning. And so, and and by saying that, if a, if a leader said that to an individual, that would be a very uh, de-shaming uh, statement that, oh, the bishop's faith is transitioning. Oh, the, uh, my faith is just transitioning. You know, I'm not in a crisis. You mean this isn't the end of the world? You mean there is a light at the end of this tunnel? Yeah, there is. And I can connect you with other people that, that have gone through that, right? So just um, normalizing the experience of, yeah, all of our faith is transitioning. You're just kind of in a in a tough spot right now, and but it'll transition one way or another, and, and you'll there's hope at the end of this. I love that. Yeah, I love the word you use, de-shaming. Yeah, and I love your reference to so some is given to know, to some is given to believe. Yeah, I did a Twitter poll one day, and I said for all the views that have at Temple recommends, sort of as a measure of that they're active Mormons. Um, do you know? Do you believe? Do you hope? Or you're not oh, yeah. sure, and just. It was about 400 respondents, and about 50% said, I know. And I think my Twitter feed is younger, millennials, and about 30% said, I believe. And mm-hmm. so I've, but in our culture, we've normalized the I know. So I hear I know testimonies. 
I hear 100%. I know testimonies. I rarely hear and I believe, but I know just like this brother that walked in your office, a, 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 not a majority, but a, a, a significant number of members are sitting there with I believe testimonies. And I don't think the goal for everybody should be to get to an I know. Yeah. I don't think that should be a requirement post, posted on myself or by a parent or a leader. Some may get there, but behind each of those testimonies may be doing the very best they can to keep their covenants, just like this fellow that walked in your office unsure about Joseph Smith. So I hope culturally we can normalize different yeah. testimony types so we create a feeling of belonging instead of having to fit in with a certain sort of vocabulary as we yeah. share our thoughts. Yeah, there's a fantastic book that I read by Peter Enns. He's a Presbyterian uh, minister, and it's called The Sin of Certainty. And we have definitely live in a, in a culture of certainty, as if the main point of going to church and progressing in the church is to be in the I know club so that we can stand up and say, I know. But he articulates uh, you know, testimony and belief in such a unique way about the testimony should lead you to a point where you trust in God, not that you know in God, right? And I, that after reading that resource and just being through this journey of talking with different individuals, when I stand on a fast and testimony meeting, I I've completely changed how I, I state my testimony. I, I don't necessarily say I know, but I articulate how my testimony and belief in Christ and his restored gospel has allowed me uh, and enabled me to trust in him further. And that is such a liberating uh, stage to be in is, is being able to trust, not that I'm certain and I've got, you know, I know and don't try and change my mind because I know, right? But it's more, it creates so much room for nuance and understanding, especially with others' perspectives, when you when you trust in God rather than you know. I really like that. I love this idea of the sin of certainty, and I love the way your testimony isn't a statement of your relationship with the church, but more of a statement of how the church and is a means to coming into Christ and yeah. to learn to trust our Heavenly Father and our Savior. Yeah. That's very helpful for me. Cool. Um Talk about your role at North Star. Yeah. Introduce North Star to our listeners if they don't know what it is. And you're, I believe you're on the board of directors. Yeah, I'm on the board of directors. So North Star is a nonprofit organization and a community of, of individuals uh, in, in the LGBT community who are striving to uh, maintain their covenants in, in the gospel, by, but still recognizing their, uh, their identity in the, the LGBT. So there's probably many other board members listening to that who have thought, ah, oh, Kurt, you dropped the ball. That's well, not no, exactly how it sounded good to me okay, from what good. I know. And I know you're new on the board, I think. It's been uh, just over a year now. Okay. And I was introduced to North Star just through leading saints. You know, obviously, the way I look at it as, uh, as a bishop or uh, any individual interacting as a leader, you don't get to choose what issues are on your appointment schedule that walk into your door and then you have to talk about. And so I wanted to create some content around, uh, you know, LGBTQ topics and understanding and perspectives. So I came across North Star, reached out to them, um, did a phenomenal episode with uh, Ty Mansfield and cool. also with... Um, I think there were three other individuals, former bishops, who all experienced same-sex attraction. And wow, I, did. I was very <laughs> new to the whole LGBT world as far as understanding it uh, really intimately. And we just talked about that experience. And then that led to another one. And then, um, you know, every time they have their conference, I've tried to promote it. And they have a leadership session. And so we try and fill that room of, of leaders so that—because— um, 
after I, I often say that it's again, I, I always want to be that leader that had the perfect scripture and I had, I had all the answers, but it's not about having the answers. It's about having the conversations, right? Like, so if you, all you need to do, you don't need to prepare and have all the answers. You just need to prepare to have the conversation. And as, as you'll know that you've had these conversations with hundreds of, of individuals, many in the LGBT community, that all they want is they want to sit down with their bishop and have a conversation. And, and they just want to reach deeper understanding of, of both perspectives and and find a level of love and then move on. They don't need to be told, all right, this is how it's going to happen, you know, if you just do this or that or, you know, and that's where so many uh, just uh, in that in that uh, demographic just it's heartbreaking to hear their stories of if I just serve a mission super well and if I just marry in the temple, it'll all fix itself and go away and and that's not what it's about, you know? And so um, I've tried to help them fill that room of leaders of say, hey, here's a Saturday. Once a year, you can come and just learn about this perspective. And uh, through that, they surprised me with a, uh, I think they called it the Beacon of Light Award at their last, uh, not this past one, but the one before their conference there. And I was, uh, you know, somebody, basically it's somebody on the outside who's promoting their, their mission and helping them accomplish that. And then uh, the president, uh, Bennett Borden, who you've interviewed, has uh, called me and asked me, said the board would like you to be a member of the board. I thought, that's cool. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm just a straight white boy here. Like, I don't know what I'd bring, but it's been so fulfilling to engage with that community, to give hugs in that community. And I'm not much of a hugger, I'll tell you that, Richard, but <laughs> but I'm, I am now, thanks to that community. And just to have those simple conversations and connect and, and, uh, you know, individualize every individual and understand that everybody has a story and, and it's been such a blessing. So to serve on that board, it's just such a phenomenal organization. And, uh, is it connected with the church at all? Tell our listeners its relationship North star with the church. So obviously it's similar to like leading saints where it's not a uh, church sanctioned or, um, but the church, uh, you know, similar to leading saints as we, we've had several meetings with, uh, individuals from the church and, uh, we've received encouragement and, um, We've worked with other, they've connected with other organizations like the More Good Foundation, which helped us uh, create a phenomenal video that we released video. Uh, last video or last conference. And um, so, so yeah, there's, there's a healthy relationship there, but uh, you know, we're not necessarily directly connected, but uh, we're, we're encouraged by that. So you said some really interesting things. You says, you know, I can't control the issues that are going to come on my calendar. Yeah. It's not like I can sign up my calendar and say it's LGBTQ night. <laughs> so Tuesday night, everybody wants to talk about LGBTQ. It may not be a bad idea. Maybe Wednesday's <laughs> faith transition. Thursday's the role of women. Right. And and so that is that is really true. So you you um, get in these situations as a leader where, and it doesn't, and I love broadening this beyond a bishop because I think young women's presence, Relief Society presence, rank and file members people are opening up to to others so i think we all kind of have to be prepared for these conversations but go back to what you advice you'd give to leaders if someone opens up about their orientation i think your advice was you know listen and try to understand but just to, so if someone's just like for the first time someone's coming out to them or opening up about their orientation to a trusted friend or leader just help you know, what advice would you give to that person? Yeah. You know, obviously it goes back to, uh, listen, love and learn, right? I mean, <laughs> that's where it, you'll never go wrong in, with those steps. And once you get to the end, repeat, right. Um, and it's similar to the, the, the faith crisis that, you know, being in a state of con congratulations of, isn't this 
isn't this great that you can now articulate this this part of you or that you've begun this journey of truly understand what God has in store for you, you know, with with a part of this uh, identity that you have that you've been able to, to bring forward. It's not going to change. Maybe it will at some point. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But what, what the reality is, is that's where you're at right now. So you know, what, where, where are we going from this and how can I be a resource, right? How can we make sure that these pews always are open to you? And I, you know, just so that people know, I wasn't that great of a bishop. There was a, um, you know, this is before my time of understanding, uh, the resources of North Star, but there was a, a gay couple in my ward. I think, I think both of them were return missionaries, but I know at least one of them was. And, we just sort of treated each other like wild animals. Like I won't bother you if you don't bother me. Right. And that's my biggest regret of just not going over there and saying, hi, I'm the Bishop. Like, can I come in for a minute and, and, and talk and, and understand. And, and again, with no preconceived uh, notions or ten, intentions of, of influence or manipulation or, but just saying, you know, asking the question, how would it look like if I made it a safe place for you to come and sit with us on Sunday? Like, would you have that even a desire to do that? Maybe they wouldn't, right? But, um, or, or how can we notify you of activities happening, right? And just keeping them engaged. Like, if we can get them in the pews, they're more likely to hopefully feel the spirit and continue on their journey of faith wherever it may lead them. But as, I mean, uh, the, I interviewed Tom Christofferson and and his bishop and stake president cool. when, when he returned to the church. And it was just, they just built this relationship of, of it was not result-focused, right? It was just about helping them be comfortable, engaging them in the gospel. You know, Tom would go over to stake president's house uh, once a, I think once a month on a Saturday, and they'd just have a gospel discussion. It wasn't about anything related to, you know, sexual orientation or any of that. It was just a gospel conversation. And then, you know, they would, uh, I think you mentioned that uh, Tom's partner would say the, was asked to say the prayer, the 4th of July breakfast, right? Like just those little things of keeping them engaged, showing that they have a place for them, and inviting inviting the ward to engage with them as well. If they see the bishop, if they see the stake president engaging with them, they will more likely engage with them and and know that it's okay. Like you're not going to get in trouble talking to Tom. So just engage with them. And it was all that removing the results or the, uh, that the intention of, well, we got to get Tom rebaptized. They just took that off the table and just connected and created a safe place and then let the savior do the rest of the work. Right. And, to me, that's that's where we need to be. If somebody comes out, you know, first off, you should be so glad that they feel comfortable walking your office and coming out and then just knowing like this is a safe place, like I'm here to help you. What resources do you need? I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to influence you. I just want you to have a healthy experience discovering uh, both your identity here on earth and your identity as a child of God. And let's see where this leads us. Let's, let's do this together. And then they feel like, oh, wait, I'm not alone in this. You mean I have an ally that's going to walk through, through all this with me. And I think that's a good place to start. I really love that. I, I'm thinking of that, that couple in a same sex relationship when you were Bishop. And I don't think I would have had the tools to go there. I think I would have made a bunch of assumptions. And I love one of the yeah, things you did. said there is, in, and just open the door that, would you like to participate in any way? Would you like to be informed of activities? And just sort of understand where they are and give them a chance to define that to you versus you self-assume where they'd like to be. 
And I just, I think all of us can do that. And I believe, like you teach, Kurt, that there's no belief or behavior hurdle to feel welcome in a congregation. I've always felt the gate is wide there. Yeah. Um, the gate narrows for the temple. There's a belief and a behavior hurdle yeah. there. So I've always loved this two-step, and our congregations should feel safe for everybody whose spiritual home is the church, no matter where they are. And that's certainly back to your point about what's the doctrine on that. That is the doctrine that Christ's firsthand demonstrated. Yeah, it's powerful. We could go for more, but <laughs> do you have any just other thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners in closing, Kurt? You know, um, I think where my mind goes as far as I know that there's individuals in your audience listening, um, you need to do some phenomenal interviews with phenomenal people that have, that have faced some tough situations and, and you know, I don't know how do I, sometimes they're trials, sometimes they're, um, just who they are and where they fit in the, the gospel. And so I know there's individuals that are listening to this and thinking, well, yeah, but my Bishop is not like that. My elders quorum president's not like that. Like, just look at that as an opportunity to show the empathy that you desire, but show it to them. And that is a great place to start. And that doesn't mean you have to be there every Sunday with a smile on and, and uh, you know, agreeing with everything your bishop says or, or whatever, but just give them a chance, be patient with them, just like you want to be pa receive patience uh, in return to you. And that's where we'll find deep relationship. That's where we'll find the gospel. That's where we'll find repentance. That's where we'll come into Christ as, as, as we're empathetic towards one another as we're in this journey in life. Thank you, Kurt Frankum. I encourage everybody to go to leadingsaints.org. Yep. Um, listen to Kurt's podcast. I've listened to several of them. They've been very helpful for me. The Anthony Sweat podcast was very helpful for me about doctrine, policy, policy doctrine, mm -hmm. yeah, and how to awesome. reconcile all that. And you were a wonderful interviewer, but you um, also just, you know, I've got great great content and great framework. Um, so you are helping a lot of people. So thank you, Kurt, for all you're doing to help our church and help our individual members. And please go check out Kurt's website and listen to his podcasts and to just help us all better come into Christ. And thank you for another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love hosted by Richard Osler. <laughs>